Thank you for visiting Crossland Community Church. We are located in Terre Haute, Indiana. For more information, please visit us online at cocchurch.com. Let's listen to one of our Sunday morning messages. If you have your Bible, turn to Matthew chapter 14. Matthew chapter 14. We're going to look at verse 22. And, you know, it's kind of weird what God has done with us lately. God has kind of been bringing us back to the Scripture. This is... this. I preached on this some time ago. Well, I actually preached on this for the GPS series when we talked about being water walkers. You'll remember that uh, sermon, I hope. And um, just several times since then, I've been making reference to Peter walking on water. And um, there's a great book that's been written by a a, a guy that I happen to think is a a, a genius in the church. Um, His name is John Ortberg. And John Ortberg has written a book called If You Want to Walk on Water, You've Got to Get Out of the Boat. And that's pretty much where this sermon has come from this morning. Um, don't read the book because I'm going to give you one of the chapters this morning, okay? And I'll, I'll do that from time to time. We're gonna, I think I'm going to preach through that book because it's, uh, it's really, really good stuff. But there's a lot to the story of Peter walking on water. There's a lot of little nuances and a lot of little things that we can learn if we'll just kind of dig in a little bit. And look for some things. And today's message is, uh, is you would not really, I don't think on first glance you would look at the story of Peter walking on water and draw out the stuff that we're going to talk about this morning, but you'll see that it does tie in and, and uh, that it does make sense. But I just want to read this morning from Matthew chapter 14 to kind of set the whole thing up, the story of, of Peter walking on water. Immediately Jesus made the disciples get into the boat and go on ahead of him to the other side while he dismissed the crowd. He's just fed a bunch of people. Um, After he had dismissed them, he went up on a mountainside by himself to pray. When evening came, he was there alone, but the boat was already a considerable distance from land, buffeted by the waves because the wind was against it. Verse 25, during the fourth watch of the night, Jesus went out to them walking on the lake. When the disciples saw him walking on the lake, they were terrified. It's a ghost, they said, and cried out in fear. But Jesus immediately said to them, Take courage, it is I, don't be afraid. Lord, if it's you, Peter replied, tell me to come to you on the water. Now, if you've got a pen in your hand, that is a verse of scripture that you need to circle, okay? Lord, if it's you, Peter replied, tell me to come to you on the water. Come, he said. Then Peter got down out of the boat, walked on the water, and came toward Jesus. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid, and beginning to sink, cried out, Lord, save me. Immediately, Jesus reached out his hand and caught him. You of little faith, he said, why did you doubt? And when they climbed into the boat, the wind died down. Then those who were in the boat worshiped him, saying, truly, you are the son of God. I have a little story to tell you before we get started this morning. A man appeared before Peter uh, at the pearly gates, and Peter wanted to know if he'd done anything of particular note. And the guy thought for a minute, he said, well, I can think of one thing. I once came upon a gang of high testosterone bikers who were threatening a young woman. I directed them to leave her alone, but they wouldn't listen. So I approached the largest of the men, uh, a heavily tattooed guy, and I smacked him on the head and I kicked his bike over and I ripped his nose ring out and I threw it on the ground and I told him, leave her alone now or you'll answer to me. St. Peter was impressed. When did this happen, he asked. Just a few minutes ago, replied the man. (laughs) 
Why do I tell you that story? There's a big difference between faith and foolishness. There is a big difference between faith and foolishness. One of the striking aspects of the story of Peter walking on water is the fact that he does not immediately jump out of the boat and try to do that. First, he gets permission from Jesus. Why does he do that? Because after all, Peter's track record is not to get permission first. I mean, Peter's track record, if you know anything at all about Peter, you know that on the Mount of Transfiguration, he, uh, Peter suggested that they stay there and they build these altars to Jesus, Moses, and Elijah, and were later told um, that the reason that he blurted that out was because <clears throat> he couldn't think of anything else to say. A lot of people, when they don't know what to say, just don't say anything at all. Not Peter. Peter had this blurting problem, probably. In the Garden of Gethsemane, surrounded by Roman soldiers, Peter took out a sword and cut off the ear of a man named Malchus. And Peter, uh, Jesus had to reach down and retrieve the ear and <laughs> super glue it back on this guy's head. I don't know how you do that, but he, he, uh, we don't do that I guess but Jesus did and can you imagine Jesus trying to explain Peter you know guys excuse him I've been working with him forever he's just kind of difficult you know I'm sorry for the way Peter's acted they were at Caesarea Philippi and Jesus predicted his own death and Peter kind of got on Jesus and said hey we need to shelve the whole talk about you dying on and dying and, and all. it's bad for morale Jesus you can't you shouldn't do that to which Jesus replied to him at one point get thee behind me Satan there's no question that Peter was in touch with his in, inner impulsive child, um, which makes his request for permission in this particular story where he walks on water, it makes it very interesting that he doesn't just jump out and run on the water like he would normally be prone to do. He stops and he asks Jesus, hey, you know, if it's you, you call me and then I'll come. The lesson is this, Peter isn't in charge of water walking. Jesus is. This is not something that Peter would be able to do anytime he wants to do it. Before he gets out of that boat, he better make sure that he is called by Jesus. When Jesus looks at us, he's looking for more than just impulsiveness from us. We have a tendency to make reckless decisions. We have a tendency to make those with our relationships and our marriages and our jobs and school. Uh, we're really good at making decisions sometimes that are impulsive decisions and then in retrospect kind of couching all of it in real spiritual terms to make us sound like we maybe prayed it through or thought it through when in fact we probably didn't psychologist frank farley spent over 30 years researching what he calls the type t personality or the thrill-seeking personality some people are drawn to high-risk behaviors and situations that that have in them a certain level of uncertainty. Some people like a lot of uncertainty, and so they seek out things that, that are really uncertain. You find that in people who are involved in, in um, you know, extreme kind of sports. Israeli scientists have uncovered what they believe is something called the high-risk gene or the risk-taking gene. These are people that you see involved in extreme sports such as mountain climbing and mountain biking and parasailing and hang gliding and this thing that they call base jumping. Now, if you don't know what base jumping is, base jumping is you go to a bridge, a high bridge, or to a cliff with a parachute, and you jump off, and you basically pray that that chute opens before you hit the ground, pretty much is what you do. 
It's very illegal. It's very dangerous. And in the 18 short years of its history, no less than 46 people have died base jumping. What's interesting is that in all, in all the self-help books that you would take off the shelf at your local bookstore, risk-taking is highly praised, but in the realm of psychology, research, researchers would say that it's mostly a danger sign, that, that risk-taking is not a good thing for people, generally speaking, that most people kind of push it too far usually and that it can become a problem. At least it, it would give a psychologist pause. It would make him wonder about his subject a little bit. There's a difference between thou shalt not be afraid and thou shalt not be ridiculous. There's usually a fine line between those two things. And the art form is really trying to figure out where that line is between being afraid and being ridiculous. Knowing when to get out of the boat and take a risk not only demands courage, it demands wisdom. Wisdom to ask the right questions. Wisdom to uh, have discernment, recognize the voice of God, and the patience to wait for his commands. So the question we want to tackle today is, how do I discern the difference between an authentic call from God to get out of the boat from my own rash impulses? We, we struggle with that. How do I know when it's something God's really calling me to do and when it's something that I just think is a great idea or something that might be fun or something that, 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 that secretly or subconsciously I want to be about and maybe not something that maybe God so much wants me to be about. Uh, so today we're going to talk about this notion of calling. Now I realize that this, is a, 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 um, this, this message this morning could be really frustrating for some of us because for some of us, um, in, in fact, I would say that if you're old enough to understand that, that uh, slide on the screen right now, this sermon could possibly be frustrating for you because if you're old enough to understand that slide, you're probably old enough to have kind of slotted yourself into a life. You know, you've picked a career, you, you've, you've, your life has kind of found a, I, I will not use the word rut because that's very, very uh, negative connotation, but, but you, you've kind of slotted yourself, okay? But there's a bunch of people in the room this morning who haven't done that yet. In fact, my son is, is uh, getting ready to go off Friday. Today's his last day with us. He's getting ready to go off on Friday. We're taking him over to school, and, and uh, his college career will start, and uh, really, you know, this is the first day of the rest of his life, so to speak. So what I'm doing this morning is I'm kind of saying some of the things to you that I've been trying to say to him. Uh, I'm saying things to you this morning, especially if you're young and you're in the room and you've got your whole life ahead of you. Um, you get golden nuggets this morning, okay? And it's not because I'm smart, it's because I've been reading a bunch of smart people, all right? But they're golden, holy nuggets. They are things that if you will listen to these things, this will improve your life, trust me. Your life will be better if you will listen to this message this morning and you will try to pick out the things that God is trying to say to you because for most of us, we, we never really thought a whole lot about calling. We, we, we just assumed that we were supposed to go pick a career and go pursue that career. And, and for most of us in the room, we didn't really think a whole lot about what God thought about it. I mean, that's kind of sad to say we're Christians and, and we should have, but we didn't. So let's start with a theological question today, all right? Let's ask this question. What does God do all day? <laughs> what does God do all day? I mean, we, you know, if we get large chunks of time, we would, 
we would probably get bored pretty quick. I think a lot of us, if we have a lot of time on our hands and we're just kind of sitting around, we would say at some point, we would sound like our kids, I'm so bored. Now, maybe you, you're sitting there thinking, I know housewives, moms are sitting there thinking, <laughs> I challenge you to give me a large block of time and see if I get bored. But for most of us, a large block of unfilled time leads to the question, what will I do all day? It's a question that those of us who, who will one day get to retirement may look around and say, you know, I thought I was looking forward to this, but I've got so much time that I'd, I kind of would like to have something to do. And it's certainly a question that you've heard your kids ask from time to time or a statement that they've made. Mom, I'm so bored. Now, I learned not to say that to my mother because she generally would put me to work. God has all of eternity on his hands. What does he do with all of that time? Does he just sit around watching stuff? The Bible's pretty clear about what God does, and it's, it comes from a single phrase. It, it basically is, he works. Listen to Psalm 121. Indeed, he who watches over Israel will neither sleep, nor sl neither slumber nor sleep. God is always protecting his flock. He's always looking over us. He's always looking out for us. When Jesus came to earth, he came as a worker. Most of his adult life was spent as a carpenter. He left little doubt about his job as a worker when he said, my father is still working and I also am working. God is described in many different ways in scripture. He's described as a gardener, as an artist, as a potter, a shepherd, a king, a builder. Has anybody ever looked at you and referred to you as a piece of work? Has anybody ever said, you know, you are a real piece of work? Well, you are. You are. You're a, you're a work, you're the handiwork of God. You really are a piece of work. Callings are not just for preachers, okay? We need to set that straight pretty early this morning. If you're really young this morning, if you're on the verge of the rest of your life, listen to me. Callings are not just for preachers. I, you know, I've been to Bible college and I've heard all the preachers come in and talk about when they were called. And I can honestly tell you, I don't know when I was called. I know that uh, now that I do this, I know that I am. But callings aren't just for preachers. And like the young uh, boy Samuel in the Bible, it may not always be uh, easy to hear God call when he does. One of the great joys of being a dad for me has always been being able to give my kids toys and gifts. Uh, I've always looked forward to their birthdays when I, whenever there was something that needed to be built, put together. You know, some parents don't like it when they take stuff out of the box and on the instructions it says some assembly required. I, I kind of like that. I like to put things together. In fact, when I, before Myra and I got married, she had two younger brothers, and I, I couldn't wait for Christmas at their house because I was the designated toy putter together, and I just love putting stuff together like that. So I've always kind of looked forward to it. But I have had the experience from time to time where, you know, you, you start putting things together. You've got this really cool toy, and you start putting it together. Uh, in particular, I'm thinking of one of those uh, motorized four-wheelers that we got for Bennett one time for Christmas. And I went to put that thing together, and when I got done, <laughs> there were some parts left over, you know. They, 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 they didn't all go into the four-wheeler. And I, I remember looking at them, trying to figure out where they might go in this thing that was already put together, and it looked great. And when we hit the gas, it went, you know. It's, it started, it worked. And so I just assumed that 
they were useless parts, that they were just left over, that they, were, they weren't really needed. And so, you know, they, they never got put in. I held on to them, had this little thing on my dresser, a little basket, and I threw them up in that basket thinking, well, if, you know, if it ever stops working, I'll try and figure out where that part goes. God, however, does not work that way. There is no such thing as a useless leftover part where God is concerned. You are not a spare part. You have a purpose. You have a mission. There is something that God calls you to do and wants you to do. We are called by Scripture to know God, to receive his love and mercy, and to be his children. A very important part of your calling is that you are given certain gifts and talents and abilities. And what God's desire is, is is he wants you to identify these with great clarity. He wants you to, to, to single out what those things are and to put those skills and talents and gifts to use joyfully and humbly as you serve God and his creation. It's very important that you understand that, that you were created with a purpose. You weren't just thrown on planet Earth and God said, hey, just go have a good time. It's not how it works. So let me explain to you where this slide comes from. That is uh, Dan Aykroyd on the left and that is John Belushi on the right. And they made a movie called The Blues Brothers. And uh, the whole point is that throughout the movie, they would, they would utter this expression throughout the movie, uh, we're on a mission from God. Now that's laughable because the movie starts with, uh, with them waking John Belushi up in prison. He is in jail and uh, he gets picked up by Dan Aykroyd and the first place they go is to see <laughs> a nun that they refer to as the penguin. So they go talk to her and they find out that this orphanage that she works at is, uh, is uh, short of funds and is going to be shut down and, and she needs some money. So uh, she also informs these two that they need to redeem themselves, uh, that they're pretty worthless and so um, they go out on this quest then to raise money for the orphanage and so in their mind they are on a mission from God and throughout the whole movie they go through all kinds of stuff I mean things get blown up people are shooting at them the police are after them it's crazy but all through the movie they are convinced that they're going to be successful and the whole reason they're going to be successful is because and they say all through the movie we're on a mission from God and it's laughable because you know the history of these two it's, it's funny because you know that these guys have spent time on the wrong side of the law. And so when they say, I'm on a mission from God, it's a funny, kind of a laughable thing. Where your life is concerned, however, that is no laughing matter. That is the absolute truth. You are on a mission from God. Here's the story of your life. God created you with a purpose. He has something specific for you to do. He's got specific plans for you, and he's gifted you and given you talents and abilities to do things that only you can do. And I know it sounds kitschy and trite and the whole deal, but you are the only you. <laughs> You're the best you there can be. And God has made you specifically for a purpose. He's given you very unique gifts and talents and personality and expects you to do something with it. If you don't believe that, if you don't buy into the whole, to the whole idea of of a calling on your life eventually you will end up in a heap because you're going to come to a place where life doesn't mean anything to you and you're going to look at yourself and you're going to say why am i here and what is this all about and life will be really frustrating for you because you will have missed your mission 
In Matthew chapter 5, Jesus said, You are the salt of the earth. But if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled by men. In effect, Jesus is saying, you are on a mission from God. So you have to take your calling seriously. In addition to taking it seriously, you have to discern it. You have to hear. You have to pay attention. God is speaking to you. He's got things that he's trying to say. You have to be ruthlessly honest about your gifts and your abilities. You have to ask some hard questions and live with the answers. And some of the dreams that you dream right now will come to a very painful end because you will realize that that's not a dream that God has for you. The truth is, you did not arrive on this planet with some pre-certified calling, and you have not landed here with all your gifts pre-developed. You've been given gifts, but they have to be developed. You have to figure out what they are and see how they can be honed and used better for God's service. Instead, you showed up on this planet with a little sticker that said, Some Assembly Required. There's a word that we use in the English language. It's the word vocation. You know where we get that word? It comes from the Latin word that we, we, would, say, we would say is voice. That's interesting to me. The whole idea of calling is something that we get from Scripture. Time and time again, God calls people, and he tells them that he has a specific job for them to do, and he lays it out for them. And time and time again, people have to kind of make friends with that idea. Here's the thing about calling. You don't so much choose a calling as much as a calling chooses you. You don't choose a calling. You're, you're chosen. It's here that I want to talk just briefly about uh, a mistake that I think many of us make. We have a tendency to go through life with a pretty selfish view of the world. Uh, we have a pretty uh, selfish look at our life. We look at the world and all the things that we experience, and we see it through a very selfish lens. And the lens is pretty much, what's in it for me? I mean, I'm here, and I'm going to go through life, and I'm pretty much looking out for me, and I'm trying to figure out what, how all this impacts me and, and, and what, what it means for me. The truth of the matter is God has put us on this planet with specific gifts and talents, and those gifts and talents have been given to us for some reason other than our own good. This is true, and, and you see this in us. You see this in, in our attitudes toward money. I mean, generally speaking, you probably operate most of the days of your life with the subconscious idea that all the money in your wallet has been given to you to be used for you and your family. When God did not give you the money that you have just to be used for you and your family. God has given you that so that you can be helpful to other people as well. God has given you your gifts and abilities so that you can be helpful to other people. He hasn't gifted you. He hasn't given Bennett the ability to play the guitar just so Bennett can enjoy playing the guitar. That's a gift that's been given so that, so that Bennett can in some way bring glory and honor to God. All the guys on the stage have been given those gifts and abilities so that they can in some way bring glory and honor to God. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean they play in a worship band. Whatever gifts and abilities you've been given have not been given to you just to please you, just to make your life great, just so you can say, hey, look what I can do. But your gifts and abilities have been given to you so that you can serve God and worship him. One of the qualities of any great artist or sculptor is the ability to discern 
the nature of the subject that they're working with. That's why when you talk to a sculptor, you will hear them talk about how they, before they ever take a chisel to the marble or to the stone, they will stand off and they will, they will look at that stone and they'll study the stone for a long time before, the, before the, the tools ever go in to make the first cut, they look at it. And you'll hear sculptors refer to what is inside. And they kind of talk from the, the, the idea of, I just basically released what was on the inside, what was wanting to get out. They say, you know, there's a certain kind of a nature to the substrate. And they study that particular thing to see if they can figure out what it is. One of the reasons I'm at Cross Lane uh, today is because of a little quote that I read 20 years ago. I was uh, out of ministry. I was fairly unhappy about that. I was not experiencing a whole lot of joy in my life at that time. And um, life was pretty rough for me. I was trying to figure a lot of things out. And I came across a little quote uh, by a guy named Frederick Beekner. And he was talking about calling, and he described one's life with these words calling he said is the place where your deep gladness meets the world's deep need calling is where your deep gladness meets the world's deep need now it's not all that difficult to figure out what the world's deep need is their deep need all around the world okay so so you don't have to look very far you don't have to go very far to figure out that the world has deep needs but we do have to look a little bit sometimes to figure out exactly what is our deep gladness. And so you ask yourself the question, where, where do I find my deep gladness? Because wherever that is, you're going to find your calling in some way attached to that deep gladness. If you're a young person, listen to me very carefully. Figure out what is your deep gladness. Because somewhere in that is the calling of God on your life. This is one of the great mistakes, I think, that high school students make. As they choose a career, most of the kids tend to think about this particular idea. How can I find a job in a career that will pay me a lot of money? That, that's, that's the preeminent, and, and to be real honest with you, that's how most of education is probably set up. That's how most college educations are probably set up. I'm, I'm trying to get on a career path that will give me, make me a lot of money. I want to choose a job. You know, I've even, you go to Yahoo, the top 10 high-paying jobs. I mean, that's how we determine whether or not someone is successful or not, that they have a job that pays them a lot of money. And while there's no question that we need money to survive, I mean, I, I understand that. I know we have to have money. If we've learned anything from celebrities and if we've learned anything from professional athletes, what we've learned is that money will not make you happy, that you can't buy happiness with all the money that you make. And even as I say these words this morning, I'm wondering, and I know this for a fact, that there are people in this room who make really good money who are miserable doing what they do. So here's the advice that I have given over and over and over again to my three children. And they, I've, they've heard this so much that I'm sure they could recite this back to you if you went up and asked them. As Bennett has prepared now to go off to college and we're getting ready to do that whole deal with him, the one thing he's heard me say over and over again to him is this, Bennett, figure out what it is 
that you love to do. Figure out what it is that you are passionate about and then figure out how to get paid for it. And if you can do that, you will never work a day in your life. But when you start from the default position of what's going to give me a lot of money, and then you pigeonhole yourself into that and you don't pay attention to your deep gladness and you don't pay attention to calling, then you set yourself up for a life of disappointment and a life of frustration. As Bennett heads off to college, I will think him successful if he is able to figure out what is his deep gladness. If he is able to figure out what is his passion and his calling and to in some way glorify God with those passions and calling. You see, giftedness is about more than just talents. It's about passion. In Psalm 19, it's referring to the heavens. It says this, Their voice goes out into all the earth, their words to the ends of the world. In the heavens he has pitched a tent for the sun. It goes on and it talks about uh, the image of a strong man, a champion, a guy who knows that, that, that he's going to be stretched by whatever he puts his hand to. This, this champion, this athlete, he knows that what he's about to enter is going to be difficult. He knows it's going to be hard on his body. He knows he's going to have to work hard. He knows that there are going to be times when he feels like giving up. But he loves the race. And he relishes the challenge. And he doesn't compete for a trophy. You know, the best athletes, the best baseball players, football players, basketball players, you know what they say about the great ones when their career is over? You know what they talk about? They don't talk about their accomplishments. They don't talk about how many trophies they won or how many world championships or how many rings they have or anything like that. You know what they say about the truly great ones? You know what they say about Michael Jordan as a basketball player? He played because he loved the game. Every great athlete, every great athlete loves the game. I mean, they get trophies almost as a default because they love the game so much that they're so good that they can't, almost can't help but win. But the truly great ones love the game, and it shows when they play whatever sport it is that they're playing. It's why Lance Armstrong seems to have a hard time walking away from the Tour de France. And he's a, he's a, a medical marvel. The guy's fought through cancer. He, he's won so many Tour de France's, it's just amazing. And even though he didn't win this last one, it's just, it's incredible what he, what he was able to accomplish in the last race. And oh, by the way, half about toward the end of this race, he said, and I will be back next year. It's why a, a teacher relishes a challenging classroom. It's, it's why a leader embraces an organization with some morale challenges and some resource limitations. It's why a writer is not intimidated by a blank page. It's why an accountant relishes the, the concept of trying to bring order to something that looks kind of out of whack. It's why a nurse delights in healing. It's why a mechanic enjoys putting tools to the, to the vehicle so that he can make it work right and fix it. They do it because they love it. They do it because there's a passion for it. They do it because they're gifted. That doesn't mean that your calling is always going to bring you feelings of enjoyment. doesn't mean that, that uh, you're always going to just feel all chirpy about what you're doing. There are going to be days that you just feel like throwing in the towel. There are going to be days you feel like giving up. I want to tell you about a guy named Parker Palmer. He is a scholar in the Quaker tradition 
And he describes something that the Quakers have called a clearness committee. A clearness committee. This committee is put together mainly to ask questions so that they can hear God's call more clearly. They're trying to help whoever sits under the clearness committee to discern the call of God on their life. And Parker had experienced some uh, he, a growing prominence in his circle of influence in terms of education and uh, in education circles. And so he was offered the presidency of an educational institution. And so he convened a clearness committee to, to kind of operate in authority over him. And this job would have meant an increase in pay. It would have meant an increase in status. And an increase in influence. From a career standpoint, this was a no-brainer thing. I mean, this is something that you, you would say, well, I mean, absolutely. I mean, this is perfect for you. As he looks back on the experience, however, he says, in this case, it's clear that my real intent in convening this group was not to discern anything but to brag about being offered a job I had already decided to accept. Okay, so what you're going to really like about Parker Palmer is this. He is brutally honest with us and with himself. He said the questions were easy at first. You know, they were asking me these softball questions and as they were asking me questions, he said I was answering all the questions. There was no problem. But then somebody asked him what was a very simple question but would prove to be the one that would trip him up. Parker, what would you like about being president of this institution? Parker had to think about it for a minute. He said, well, I wouldn't like all the politics involved. I wouldn't like having to give up my study and my teaching. I wouldn't like to have to raise funds. But the questioner reminded him, but Parker, what would you like about being the president? He went on and he listed some more things that he wouldn't like. And finally, the questioner came back again and irritated Parker Palmer with his question once again and said, but Parker, you're not answering my question. What would you like about being president? And Palmer writes this, I felt compelled to give the only answer I possessed, an answer that came from the very bottom of my barrel, an answer that appalled even me as I spoke it. Well, I said in the smallest voice I possess, I guess what I'd like the most is getting my picture in the paper with the word president under it. I was sitting with seasoned Quakers who knew that though my answer was laughable, my moral, mortal soul was clearly at stake. They did not laugh at all, but went into a long and serious silence, a silence in which I could only sweat and inwardly groan. Finally, my questioner broke the silence with a question that cracked all of us up and cracked me up. Parker, he said, can you think of an easier way to get your picture in the paper? Now, knowing what you know about Parker Palmer, knowing that the job ultimately would have been a power trip, something to stroke his ego, what do you think the result would have been had Parker Palmer taken the job as the president of the educational institution? His life would have been marked by fatigue and frustration and disappointment. There would have been a lack of joy. He wouldn't have had any energy. And he would have felt terribly inadequate. Most likely, he wouldn't have been a very good president. And if he was, he'd have been miserable doing it. 
And at the end of the day, if Parker Palmer were anything like us, he would probably have tried to blame the problem on some dysfunctional organization or some other person and make it their fault and not be honest and say, you know what, I'm just not supposed to be doing this. Discerning your calling requires listening. It requires real, honest listening. There are certain things in your life that you're drawn to, certain ways of being, certain ways of doing. A good friend of mine just recently gave Bennett a book, and in the book he said, live, be, do. Bennett said, Dad, what's he mean by that? What he means by that is, you've got a calling. Listen for that calling. Put your hand to the thing that God calls you to do and has gifted you to do. There's a distinction that we need to draw at this point. It's very important to distinguish what I love doing for its own sake from what I may want to do because of the rewards it can bring to me. There was a study done of 200 artists. And the study was done 18 years after they had started at art school. What was discovered is that the art students who savored the sheer joy of painting became serious painters. Those who had been drawn to art school because of the money or fame that it promised 18 years later were not painters anymore. The researcher boiled all the research down to this one statement. Painters must want to paint above all else. If the artist in front of the canvas begins to wonder how much he will sell it for or what the critics will think of it, he won't be able to pursue original avenues. Creative achievement depends on single-minded immersion. Ulysses S. Grant is considered one of the great war heroes of our country. In fact, his memoirs are considered one of the classics in military literature. But when it comes to his effectiveness as a president, most people do not regard Ulysses S. Grant as very effective as a president. Most people say that he was way overmatched, that he was in over his head, and that he was very, very ineffective. And so the question begs to be asked, what is it that lured President Grant to that post? The answer is probably that he needed to matter, that he had an ego, that he needed to be significant in the game, that he needed to be taken into account. His need for acceptance and wholeness blinded him, and he could not acknowledge his own limitations. And at the end of the day, he truly did not love the job, and he had no passion for it. And he could have said with Parker Palmer, really what I wanted was to have my name in the paper with the word president underneath it. I I went to Bible college in 1982. And I, I, I went because really in my life it was just, God pretty much forced me to go there. I mean, he'd taken everything else away and he said, look, this is where I want you to be. And I believe that with my whole heart. But when I got there, I met several young men, uh, some of whom were preacher's kids. And uh, they were there for no other reason than that they were expected to be there. They were there because dad was a preacher, and because dad's a preacher, I'm supposed to be a preacher. So I'm not really passionate about preaching, and I don't really want to go into the ministry, but My whole life I've been told that I was going to go into ministry, so I'm here at Bible college because I'm supposed to be a pastor. 
My freshman year, they found one of those young men in his dorm room snorting cocaine. And he was promptly asked to leave Bible college. Can you imagine that? They didn't want him there. And he was, that's what happened. He'd been pigeonholed. You've got to go there. You've got to be like your dad. You've got to, and his, his dad was a pretty prominent guy. To go into the ministry, or for that matter, to do anything for any reason other than calling is to not honor your raw material. When I don't honor my raw material, reality becomes my enemy. I close my eyes and my ears to any indications uh, of anything, but, but, but I'm not really trying to pursue my calling. When I, when I don't honor my raw material, when I don't look inside and say, okay, what makes me me? What, 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 where is my deep gladness? What, what, when I really put my hand to <clears throat> this thing, whatever this thing is, something comes alive in me. You've you got to figure out. Young people, you have to figure out what that is. What, I heard my wife one time talking about Bennett. There, Bennett went through a stage where he liked to play cards, and she said, you know, if you really want to speak his love language, it's through cards. He likes to play cards. What is it? Parents, when, when you talk to your kids, what is their love language? What, what, what things that when you talk about those things, you see their face light up? And you see a marked difference in the way they respond and how they talk and move and, 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 and you see a light in their eyes that you don't see any other time. When you see that thing, that is probably in some way tied to the calling that God is going to put on their life. Now, I don't know that the World Poker Tour is, you know, is necessarily a calling for somebody to pursue. Maybe, who knows? I don't know. I doubt it. Let me ask some questions that might, you might ask yourself for some self-reflection and introspection. Here's one. What, what is your most painful limitation? What is the limitation that frightens you the most? And it frightens you to even acknowledge it and to accept it. Where do you most avoid seeing the deep truth about yourself. To see yourself as you truly are, to be honest with yourself about what your possible possibilities and your limitations are, it's one of the greatest challenges in life, and it takes a great amount, a tremendous amount of self-awareness to answer these kind of questions. You have to be honest with yourself. You have to truly look inside and ask yourself some things about you. Paul encouraged us to regard ourselves with sober judgment. Here's some more questions. What do I enjoy doing for its own sake? What do I avoid doing and why? For what do I want to be remembered? How might the offer of money or promotion sidetrack me from my true calling? What would my life look like if it turned out well? The fact of the matter is that God did not place you on this earth for you to waste away doing work that he did not intend for you to do and that is not in keeping with his design and purpose for your life. It's important to note that calling oftentimes involves pain. If you pursue your calling, there are some dreams that are going to have to die for you to really pursue your calling. A dream career usually promises wealth and power and status and security and great benefits. But a calling is different. 
God told Moses to go to Pharaoh, the most powerful man on the planet, and to say to a man who didn't even believe in God, God wants you to let my people go. You know what Moses said? Here am I, Lord. Send Aaron. (laughs) I don't want to do this. God called Jonah to go to Nineveh, the most corrupt city in the world, and call them to repentance. And Jonah said, is there a whale I can catch going in an opposite direction, far, far away from Nineveh? Jeremiah is the prophet that was called to preach to a people who wouldn't listen. And Jeremiah cried so much that we have come to know Jeremiah as the weeping prophet. By and large, people who experienced callings in Scripture felt terribly inadequate to fill the position. Most people were very hesitant to answer that call. I think a lot of people have the attitude, God would never call me to do something that I can't, uh, would, would never call me to do anything I can't do. When the fact of the matter is, entering a call by God to do something that we can't do and that only God can do is the preeminent way that we honor God and we give him glory. There there is no way that, that I am adequate to be the pastor of this church by myself. There's just no way. And, and no one is more aware of that than me. And there's no way that we're ever going to be the kind of church God wants us to be if all we ever do are the things that only we can do as a church. That's not how God wants us to operate. We'll always lean into God. We'll always look to do those things that can only be done with his help because we do not want to get to the end of a project and look over our shoulder and say, look what we did. We want to look back over our shoulder and say, man, can you believe how good God is? Can you believe that God did that through us, with us, for us, in us? Your calling will have a high price. It might mean that you put in hours of work that you'd rather not. It might mean that you don't get the kind of recognition that you'd like to get. It might mean that you uh, don't have the kind of influence that you'd always hoped for. Sometimes you'll devote yourself to something and it's not going to turn out the way you wanted it to turn out. Sometimes you'll experience crushing disappointment and discouragement. Somewhere along the line in your calling, people will stand in your way and they will oppose you. They will say that you're wrong. And they'll say you don't have any idea what you're talking about. They'll question your motives. It may take a long time to discern your calling. It may involve trial and error. It, it's gonna, it may, may, you may have to listen a long time before you finally settle in and say, you know what, this is really what I think God is calling me to do. And there may be several false starts. And you may fall on your face a couple of times before you really figure it out. But the question is this. Young people, the question is this. Will you turn off your iPod long enough to sit in silence long enough to listen, to really listen, and to ask yourself some questions about you, and to be really honest in your responses to what God is calling you to do. We don't talk much about calling in America anymore. We talk an awful lot about career. But for so many people, a career comes on the altar, it becomes the altar on which we sacrifice everything else. We sacrifice our families, we sacrifice our, our sanity, Uh, oftentimes for the careers that we have chosen. Benjamin Honeycutt is a historian who specializes in the history of work at the University of Iowa, and he said, work has become our new religion where we worship 
and give our time. Here's what we have to understand this morning, and I'll close. Calling is something that I do for God. Career is something I do for myself. Calling is something I receive. Career is something that I choose. A calling is something I do for God. A career promises status, money, or power, things that I want for myself. A calling generally promises difficulty, even some suffering, and the opportunity to be used by God. A career is about upward mobility. A calling is about downward mobility. The biggest difference is probably that a career may end with retirement and lots of toys, but a calling is never over. You will do a calling till the day you die. The rewards of a career may be quite visible, but they are very temporary. The significance of a calling lasts forever. A career can be disrupted by any number of events, but not a calling. When God calls people, he enables them to fulfill their calling, even in the most unlikely of circumstances. Pharaoh had a career. Moses had a calling. Potiphar had a career. Joseph had a calling. Haman had a career. Esther had a calling. Pilate had a career. Jesus had a calling. Charles Colson is one of my favorite authors, one of my favorite people on earth. He was involved in the Watergate scandal in the mid-70s, and he was convicted, and he was uh, on his way to prison. And it looked like his political career was over, and in fact, it was over. But then all of a sudden, God gave him a calling. And in Charles Colson's own words, he says, the real legacy of my life was my biggest failure, that I was an ex-convict. My great humiliation being sent to prison was the beginning of God's great use of my life. He chose the one experience in which I could not glory for his glory. You have a calling. You are not a spare part. You are on a mission from God. You just have to remember that some assembly is required. Now, if you're in the room this morning and you've never given your heart to Christ, that's really step one. I mean, that's God's will for everybody is that they come to know Jesus. And if you've never done that, and you really would like God to speak to you, and you really would like for God to lead you and reveal your calling, it starts with giving your life to Christ. We're going to stand and sing in a moment. And if you've never given your life to Christ, you're welcome to do that. If you think, no, I want to talk to somebody, come find me. We'll talk. Be happy to talk with you about it. But don't ignore this idea of giving your life to Christ. If you need to do that, you need to do that. Let's pray together. Father, it's kind of deep this morning. There's a lot of stuff to consider, and calling is just one of those kind of weird kind of things that we talk about. We've pretty much associated that with preachers most of our life, most of us. I pray, Father, that this morning we've changed that a little bit and we've enabled at least some of the younger people to really start to think about what am I called to do? And, Father, it's not just for young people. If we're fogging a mirror this morning, you've got a calling for us. And so my prayer, Lord, is that we would ask hard questions. My prayer is that we would really stop and, and look inward. And we would be honest with ourselves and ask ourselves some really tough questions. God, you're incredible. You're so amazing. You, you know us better than we know ourselves. You've gifted us and given us talents. I pray, Father, that we would find our deep gladness and put our hand to those things so that you ultimately get glory and honor. It's in Jesus' name we pray.
Thanks for visiting. We hope you've been encouraged. Please feel free to visit us online at clcchurch.com.